solange es noch steht. Vor dem alten Kölner Dom steigt ein Atomfels in die Luft und der Himmel ist erfüllt von Millionen This yes. is hell. Okey-doke. The planet's on fire, so yes, this is hell. And a big-time contributor to our burning planet is cryptocurrency, especially Bitcoin, which annually, as our next guest writes, exhausts the same amount of energy as the entire country of Argentina. A single transaction requires 707 kilowatt hours of electricity, emitting half a ton of CO2. One Bitcoin transaction uses as much power as an average U.S. household uses over 73 days. And U.S. households use a lot of power. In 2018, it was estimated that the process of verifying and mining Bitcoin could on its own raise global temperatures over 2 degrees Celsius by 2048, so all of those climate change talks will have gone for naught. So you would not be, or you would think, not just the left, but the entire world would be up in arms over the devastating effects crypto is having on all of us when it comes to global heating. But oddly, there are those, even on the left, who see it as a way to break from the power of illiberal governance dominated by the wealthy and powerful. That's not to say that all blockchain paradigms are as destructive as Bitcoins, but that's the kind of climate-devastating blockchain that Bitcoin depends upon. Meanwhile, libertarians insist that crypto's a way to free ourselves from the iron grip of the already absurdly rich. They believe crypto, especially things like, specifically things like Bitcoin, will give us all access to prosperity, freedom, and ownership of wealth, that brings real stability and peace, as was argued in a 2018 Wall Street Journal article by former Republican Texas congressman as well as Senator Phil Graham, whose co-author was the neoliberal economist Hernando de Soto. I know, colonial name, right? You know the Senator Graham who was behind the 1999 Glass-Steagall Bank Deregulation Act that would eventually play a major role in the financial collapse of 2008. So why not take advice from him, despite the hopes by libertarians that this will lead to their fantasy of a world without government? It's far more likely that crypto will end up creating a plutocracy where all are governed by the very few who are the very wealthiest. The whole thing makes you reconsider those crypto ads with Larry David, LeBron James, and Tom Brady, none of whom seem to mind exploiting the rest of us for their own personal gain. In a few minutes, we will have the return of activist, writer, and socialist Hadas Tir, who wrote the Dollars and Cents article, Cryptocurrency Will Not Liberate Us, Deflating the Egalitarian Fantasies of Digital Currencies, which appears in the January-February issue of Dollars and Cents. Hadas is author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist economics, which we discuss with Hadas the day after Election Day 2020, because why not talk about 
Marxist Economics the Day After Election Day 2020. That book was selected by listeners. It was one of our favorite uh, books to be featured here on This Is Hell in 2020. Hadassah is also a staff writer at Jacobin. And speaking of timely writing relative to that Election Day 2020 conversation, Hadassah's most recent writing at Jacobin includes the Valentine's Day posted article, The stories we tell ourselves about marriage are wrong. Our society is deeply invested in a rosy version of romance while offering little support for families to survive the challenges of marriage and child rearing. We can't survive those challenges without honest narratives about the maddening realities of love. You can follow Hadass on Twitter at Hadass Tier. That's Hadass T-H-I-E-R. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show, podcast, live-streaming host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vupper. Anything new in your world, Sebastian? Mm, um, I mean, if you can consider waking up at like six o'clock in the morning and like audibly hearing your cat going potty and then realizing that's cat diarrhea that i'm hearing and i should get up <laughs> and grab her and wash her butt before she gets on the bed and you know the glories of um pet ownership ah so for you this morning this is hell um uh, yes <laughs> at least a chapter in it the only thing new in my world is my punchki, as I pronounced it on yesterday's show, with the caveat that I am a non-pole, which is supposedly pronounced punchki, but contributor Jeff Dorchin insists it's pronounced punchki, and my late great brother, he insisted it was pachki. Well, it, whatever it is, it did not arrive at my home yesterday as ordered. Instead, because of the intense rush on punchki or punchki or punchki or pachki, Day, the day prior to Ash Wednesday, is one of the last indulgences Roman Catholics can have prior to Lent. I have to wait until after the show today, when supposedly those delightful powder-sugared spheres of fried dough with delicious fillings will be awaiting me on my doorstep, unless, of course, one of the neighbors sees them delivered first. But more important than my delayed delight in having punchki, pachki, punchki, whatever with my morning coffee, Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell is, what conflict are you avoiding? What conflict are you avoiding? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever this is hell swag you want. This is hell t-shirt, the tote bag, the face covering, or the face mask. The coffee mug, the This Is Hell Guide to the 21st Century flash drive featuring dozens of interviews from the 2000s, the trucker's cap, the winter beanie, or toque if you prefer. You can check out all of our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support where you will see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. We are not a not-for-profit. We do not accept any grant money, and we don't have any commercial advertisers as this is completely commercial free. Thanks to Nicholas P. of Washington, D.C., who showed his support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. In doing so, Nicholas also picked up a This Is Hell trucker's cap. Also, thanks to the ongoing tithing-like commitment to This Is Hell by Brett B. and Magnificent Me. Thanks, Nicholas, Brett, and Magnificent. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash this is hell radio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at this is hell radio, or you can email it to us. And at this point in time, you should email it to us at this is hell radio at gmail.com to make sure Sebastian has access to it. But we must have your answer by the end of today's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the moment of truth during this week's moment. 
Jeff coins the phrase feast or phantom. Feast or phantom? Sebastian will be sharing your answers to this week's question from hell. Following our conversation with Hadass on cryptocurrency, again, the question from hell is what conflict are you avoiding? What conflict are you avoiding? You can email us at chuckatthisishell.com at any time with your guest or topic suggestions, comments on the show, constructive or destructive criticism, and we'll likely share your thoughts on air briefly as we want to get to Hadass because her writing on crypto is mind-blowing. We asked listeners to send us their ideas on guest suggestions who are on guests who can discuss the Ukraine-Russia situation. Recent guest Paolo Sorbello of opendemocracy.net writes quickly in reference to your request for contributors on Ukraine. I would suggest Tom Rowley, lead editor at Open Democracy, and previously, this is how guest Simon Perani. Love and solidarity, Paolo. Tom's recent writing includes articles that were posted prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine titled The UK Can Sanction Russian Luxury Property, But Will It? And The UK's Russia Sanctions Are Not Enough, Experts Warn. Meanwhile, Simon was on our show, who was on our show back in 2019 to discuss his book Burning Up a Global History of Fossil Fuel Consumption. That interview is actually transcribed by listener Veronica for a Croatian anti-fascist online journal maz.hr. In December, Simon wrote the paper Ukraine's Energy Policy and Prospects for the Gas Sector for the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies. Thanks for the suggestions, Paolo, and we received a couple more guest suggestions on Ukraine, which we will be sharing towards the end of today's show. Coming up, cryptocurrency is worse than you think, no matter how bad you think it is. We'll also have more of your answers to this week's question from hell and tell you what's happening on this week's Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Another end of the world is possible. Who knew? This is hell. Libertarians hoped cryptocurrency would save us all from the oppressive con- control governments have over our economic lives, and some on the left actually shared those hopes. But it turns out cryptocurrency may just usher in yet another form of even more egregious oppression. Returning to This is Hell to give us a better understanding of just how awful crypto can be, activist, writer, and uh, socialist Hadas Tir wrote the Dollars and Cents article, Cryptocurrency Will Not Liberate Us. Welcome back to This is Hell, Hadas. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. I really loved your timing of your article about marriage on Valentine's Day being posted at Jacobin. Was that intentional? Definitely intentional, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I was certainly hoping so. I was hoping that Jacobin didn't have that on the back burner for like six months and then decided to post it. Again, you can follow Hadass on Twitter at Hadass Tier. So you begin by quoting a Bitcoin billionaire, Michael Saylor, in a recent interview with Fox News host Tucker Carlson saying, Crypto is the, or Bitcoin, I should say, is the ultimate egalitarian system. Anyone can participate. You don't need a bank. You don't need anyone's permission. You write that Saylor goes on to say the point of Bitcoin is to fix the money, and money is energy, and energy is life. Is Bitcoin at least more egalitarian than state-controlled or backed or fiat currency? I mean, that that is certainly the promise and the idea and, you know, the mythology of cryptocurrency. But in reality, it's actually the opposite of that. You know, that if you look at the concentration of who has, you know, crypto, who has, you know, 
cryptocurrency wealth. Uh, if you look at, there was a study recently about Bitcoin and you know the top 1,000 investors control about 3 million of the Bitcoins and 10,000 investors control 5 million of the Bitcoins. Um, you know, that's a, a huge amount of concentration. It's actually about a hundred times more concentrated than the dollar economy, which is already obviously absurdly unequal. So, you know, you, you have the gap between the mythology of cryptocurrency and its reality couldn't be, couldn't be further. Why do you think that mythology has been so successful? Well, I mean, it's an appealing idea, you know, I mean, certainly the, the fiat economy, the dollar economy sucks and there's, um, it, it leaves out the vast majority of people in terms of, uh, who has, who has power in our financial system. Um, you know, if there is, if there was a, a, a quick techno fix to that, then that would be wonderful. Um, I'm, I'm no fan of our current financial system. Uh, and you know, there's also been, it's to the benefit of those people that do have high concentration of crypto wealth to advance that mythology. Um, and you know, to bring in, basically fresh blood. Um, so get more and more people invested in, in cryptocurrency and, and which inflates the prices, which means that the people that hold, you know, millions of dollars worth of Bitcoin or whatever become, um, you know, even richer. And so you have like, you know, the Michael Saylors of the world or the Elon Musks of the world, you know, they have huge, uh, platforms and, um, you know, by kind of advancing this mythology and bringing more people into uh, uh, into this world, uh, that just increases uh, the amount of uh, money that 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 they uh, have themselves. So that would seem like not only a conflict of interest, but it would seem like a Ponzi scheme by the very wealthiest people in the world. Is it fair to call it a Ponzi scheme, or does a Ponzi scheme not quite define what crypto is? I mean, I think it's a pretty fair comparison. There was actually a piece in the Financial Times a few weeks ago that said that the comparison is unfair to Ponzi schemes because Ponzi schemes you can actually recuperate. You know, <clears throat> what if it's if it's exposed? Um, you know, a lot of the people that were uh, that 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 lost out money through the Bernie Madoff uh, scheme and so on actually got their money back. Um, there's some recourse there. The world of cryptocurrency is completely unregulated. So it has a lot of the same, you know, ideas and principles of a Ponzi scheme and it's completely unregulated. There are no, there's no protections. It's like, you know, the wild west of, uh, um, of a financial system, and but you, yeah, the, you know, yeah, go ahead. No, you, you go ahead. Yeah, no, but just, you know, it's, it's like the ultimate hype economy, right? It's like, there's so, if you follow, there's all these, um, whatever, fake social media accounts and all sorts of things, but all of this energy flows into getting people to buy into it. Uh, I can't remember what exactly Michael Saylor said, but it was something along the lines of like, you know, save, buy, steal in order to buy crypto, um, in order to buy Bitcoin. 
um, you know, it's, uh, there's so much hype around it, uh, that gets people to, to buy in that drives up prices, um, and, and to the benefit of the few. You write that cryptocurrencies come in the form of digital coins or tokens, though they function as assets for investment more easily than as a means of exchange. Over the last few years, and during this past year in particular, cryptocurrencies have gone from being a fringe investment made mostly by hardcore crypto adherents into a $2 trillion industry, including many mainstream investors getting in on the action. So they function as assets for investment more easily than as means of exchange. Are they easier to use? at investing in a business, at becoming a stakeholder or a shareholder than they are at actually buying stuff? Is crypto more for investors than they are for consumers? Because that would suggest they are for those who have extra income to invest rather than those who are trying to buy things they need to survive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is another case where like the mythology is is miles apart from the reality, right? So part of what feeds the kind of culture of Bitcoin in particular, but cryptocurrency in general is this is the money of the future, you know? And so you should get in on this because this is going to be, you know, how people exchange things in the future and um, our, the fiat economy is going to be obsolete and so on get in now on the ground floor. The reality is, is that very few um, places will take Bitcoin. It does not function as money. And there's a couple of key reasons for it. One is, you know, it does require a lot of um, energy and technology just to, um, you know, just to have the transactions go through. It's a way, way slower than any kind of credit card or, or other, you know, processing um, mechanism. So it's it's very clunky. It's not used very widely. Um, but even more importantly, it's you know the 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 value is so volatile that it can't you know it uh, undermines the whole basis of of what currencies uh, you know at least successful currencies aim to do, which is to provide some kind of stable store of value. Um, you know, if you went to uh, a car dealership and you tried to buy, you know, a, a car for whatever fraction of a Bitcoin, um, and that would equal, let's say about $10,000 at that moment. Well, by the time the transaction goes through, that value may have been doubled to 20,000. Maybe you, um, you know, actually spent $20,000 on a car instead of $10,000 or vice versa. It may have dropped in half. And then the car dealership just sold a car for 5,000 instead of 10,000. This is, this is gambling. This is not, you know, basic, um, you know, monetary transaction. So it's, it's really, um, does not function as a currency. But like you said, it does function absolutely as a means of speculation. And there's already, you know, there's all sorts of, um, you know, not just the trading in uh, crypto itself, but there's now all sorts of financialized, you know, um, derivatives and so on that have been built around the thing, just as we've seen in Wall Street. Um, but again, completely unregulated. Uh, Wall Street as it is, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm absolutely not a fan of Wall Street, and it's not as regulated as it needs to be uh, by far. But now, 
even less regulated uh, is the is the world of cryptocurrency. Is that the binary framing that this is falling into that you either support cryptocurrency or you support Wall Street? Yeah, I mean, I think that for a lot of the proponents of crypto, I mean, that's the that's the sort of fallback is like, you know, what, are you are you a shill for um, for Wall Street and for the fiat economy and for the state having control over every aspect of our lives? And, you know, I'm opposed to all of those things. I just think this is a worse, you know, this is a, a the solution is worse than the than the illness in this case. You explain that crypto uses a technology called blockchain and Bitcoin by far the most widely help, uh, held cryptocurrency uses what's known as proof of work blockchain technology. A blockchain is a digital database that rather than being owned by an individual and stored on a single computer is distributed among computers on a shared network. A blockchain's database is secured through the cooperation of many computer nodes in the system. In the case of proof of work, this requires computers in the network to verify each transaction by creating and solving complex mathematical questions. In solving increasingly complex complex random puzzles the owners of these computers participate in building out a public virtual ledger of all transactions and are rewarded with new bitcoins for their troubles this is known as bitcoin mining so if bitcoin is egalitarian as its supporters suggest does everyone have equal access to this kind of mining and if not who does have access to these kind of mining tools and abilities yeah that's a very good question i mean absolutely this is not an an equal. This is not an equal uh, access situation, um, which again is the mythology of of Bitcoin and blockchain technology. And you know there was a time early on um, in Bitcoin's history where you could you know anyone with a computer could get in on this action. That is way you know far gone in the past at this point that now you need you know i mean thousands of computers uh factories full of, of computers being powered by um you know massive uh energy and electricity uh you know to in the 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 more um you know the more that 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 this network has grown and the more that people have gotten in on it it requires higher and higher levels of uh, computational um, you know, processes to, to get in on this. So you have to have more and faster computers in order to compete because, you know, basically it's, it's a competition, you know, every time a new uh, piece of data gets added to the ledger, it's a competition across the network of who can solve this riddle more quickly. Uh, obviously those with more and faster computers are the ones that can do it. And um, it's become, you know, a major industry. Um, and, and as you said earlier, uh, one that is a, a completely, you know, fossil fuel uh, guzzling uh, and energy, you know, uh, carbon dioxide emitting uh, industry at that. So if Bitcoin is a threat to the planet, is a contributor to global heating, to the best of your knowledge, is it the subject of climate change talks and in policies related to global warming? Because you would think the UN and nations that are involved in climate change talks would band together to rein in their impact on CO2 emissions, and that that might lead to this no longer being a 
completely unregulated cryptocurrency, that there might be regulations if it does contribute so much to global heating. So to the best of your knowledge, is this part of climate change talks at this point? Are environmentalists doing trying to do something about Bitcoin? There, there's definitely a lot of talk among environmentalists. Um, how much talk there is uh, in term, you know, from from you know the UN and heads of states and so on and so forth. I think we're just at the beginning of the process in terms of um, you know talks about regulation. The SEC is trying to get involved and so on. Um, but it's it's been the you know it's been the wild west and it is really just at the beginning stages of discussions about about regulations um you know obviously our you know wor- world leaders um have been woefully slow to address the climate crisis even before the explosion of you know bitcoin mining and so on um so i'm i don't feel terribly optimistic that they'll be quick to move on this and it's a and it's a harder thing um to regulate um you know but we but but it's certainly something that um environmentalists and people on the left are are taking increasing um you know alarm and note of um and trying to to organize around um you know, I mean, it's like I think about how both it, how climate uh, crisis-inducing Bitcoin is, and and at the same time how useless it is. Like the combination of those two things is what really kind of blows my mind. Like it's one thing, you know, like the car industry is completely entrenched and is a major reason why we have, um, you know, such huge uh, carbon dioxide um, emissions and why, you know, public the state of public transportation is so dire in this country, you know, but you can at least say of a car that it gets you from point A to point B. It's like a physical thing and it's going to require, you know, some, a, a huge amount of work to actually move away from, um, from from cars and the automobile industry and so on to public transportation. And that's a really important thing that needs to happen. And it's going to take a lot of work. But here we have, now we're adding an, a problem that, that literally does not produce anything. It does not get you from point A to point B. It does not give you a physical anything. You know, it's, it's, it's a completely um, speculative asset. And, you know, it's not to say that there aren't positive things from that could come about from blockchain technology. And that's sort of a separate question, but these are, um, you know, which, which we could talk about, but, but the main driver of, um, of, of, you know, Bitcoin technology is going toward, I mean, of blockchain technology is going towards, uh, Bitcoin and, and other cryptocurrencies. Yeah, let's so let's talk about that for a moment. So, is there a type of blockchain then that is not as dangerous to the environment? That is not as wasteful as you say Bitcoin is. Yeah, I mean the most um, the most notable one is the proof of stake technology as opposed to proof of work. So, proof of work in order to um, 
in order to verify the next piece of data on the chain. As we said, it's all of these uh, computer nodes uh, competing to, to solve complex mathematical problems. Proof of stake doesn't use that. It's, it, it says basically, you know, based on how many um, digital coins you have, what your stake is in the system, um, that the the network basically, um, you know, allocates who is going to be making the verification uh, based on those that kind of allocation, and and you know that that brings with it its its own problems in my opinion, but it's not a, a great um, environmental problem. Um, so you know that that would be that would be better. But I think part of the issue is that, you know, proof of stake has been around for a while. This is not brand new technology um, or, pro- or a brand new process. Um, and so, uh, you know, a lot of p- crypto adherents will say, well, look, you know, here's a, a positive alternative. It doesn't have to be this, um, you know, energy guzzling system. But the reality is, and, you know, why hasn't it shifted, um, you know, Ethereum, which is, uh, apart from Bitcoin, um, you know, one of the most widely held cryptocurrencies, um, you know, has promised that it will shift to proof of stake. Uh, but you know, that, that hasn't happened. Um, still the majority of their, uh, processes take place on based on proof of work. And, um, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, this technology doesn't exist in a vacuum. It, it is part of a capitalist order, right? It has the same logic to it where the money investment uh, energy in terms of uh, re- research and work that people do flows to where money is being made uh, and where money is being made um, most you know, in, in largest quantities is, is Bitcoin, you know, so that's, that's what's being rewarded, um, is not based on what is most ecologically sustainable, but what is getting the most and quickest bang for your buck. You write that with tens of millions of people around the world owning crypto assets and with thousands of fervent believers, cryptocurrencies seem to have something for everyone. Conservatives like Tucker Carlson love Bitcoin's supposed anti-inflation mechanisms and the implication by Carlson has been therefore if you are watching my show right now and you're being hurt by inflation you should invest in Bitcoin is Bitcoin a way to avoid the problems consumers have with inflation and how in how uh, inflation proof is Bitcoin because you were talking about its volatility so it wouldn't seem like that would be the case yeah I mean Bitcoin adherents will tell you, well, because there is, you know, built into Bitcoin, there is a sort of like endpoint of how many Bitcoin are allowed to be produced. Um, it'll be, you know, so it's like, I can't remember what it is, but it's a finite amount of Bitcoin. We haven't reached that point yet, um, but eventually we will. Um, and so it can never, its value can never, you know, um, become, you know, overly, um, you know, be, be ravaged by inflation in the same kind of way that like, let's say a country just starts producing more and more 
um, of its own currency and that drives its value down and so on. I, I think that that's a pretty dubious claim. Um, but I also think that, you know, along the way between now and then, um, what is driving Bitcoin value up and down um, is speculation. It's not about, you know, the, the fact that there is in the future a limited supply of Bitcoin doesn't negate the fact that there's wild amounts of speculation that fuel um, the movement of Bitcoin value, you know? So we've seen, I mean, it's, I think, I think this is pretty common knowledge, right? That like the value of Bitcoin has shot up and then plummeted down and, um, and so on and so forth. So, you know, yeah, there are problems with inflation. Um, you know, they're, they're overstated in a way, um, in, in the U S but they're, but there, it's a real thing that needs to be grappled with the value of Bitcoin going up and down is way more, um, way more volatile than that. You write that cryptocurrency leftist crypto devotees uh, argue it is a leaderless movement to unseat the plutocrats who have benefited hand over fist from our centralized banking system. And you mention a series of articles penned by Alex Gladstein, chief strategy officer at the Human Rights Foundation, and the series of uh, lengthy articles, each of which claim that Bitcoin will answer one or another variety of global inequalities. Africans living in countries that had been colonized by France and which, despite their independence, still have their economic fates determined by French banks, could free themselves from the monetary domination of the French-backed currency, the Central Africa franc. Palestinians in Gaza, who are not only physically barred from free movement, but are also economically dependent on their oppressors, can now buy the dip and make money off of Bitcoin investments, i.e. buy Bitcoin when its value has dropped and make a profit when and if the value bounces back up. How much can Bitcoin circumvent the challenges of occupation and even colonialism for those who are in the occupied territories? Yeah, I mean, that that was one of the most kind of mind-blowing um you know, ideas, uh, assertions that I, that I read that the idea that Bitcoin will help, uh, Palestinians seems like a stretch beyond stretches. I mean, Gladstein goes on to talk about, you know, why can't Palestinians, um, buy things from Amazon? You know, it's like a complete disconnect from reality. I mean, as far as I know, Amazon doesn't actually deliver to Israel, let alone Palestine. But, um, you know, and you would have to go through military checkpoints uh, in order to get into uh, the West Bank or Gaza. I mean, the 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 idea that um, ordering something off of Amazon is at the top of concerns for Palestinians um, is insane to me. Um, Sorry drink a little water. But, but yeah, it, it, it basically what this argument comes down to is a complete misunderstanding of where the problems come from, you know, that um, we have a problem of, of class power, colonial power that can't, doesn't have a simple techno fix, you know, that capitalism has created these deep and violent you know, geopolitical and social problems. 
And um, the idea that you would um, ask Palestinians who already, you know, first of all, have uh, limited um, internet access. So I, I don't understand how that uh, cryptocurrencies is a solution. Um, but you're you're asking people with um, already very little material means to expose themselves to a completely volatile and risky asset, you know? So it's like leaving aside that it, it requires reliable electricity infrastructure, stable internet service, um, all, all sorts of things like that. Um, it's the, the riskiness of actually putting your money into cryptocurrency um, is seems like the ex, the exact opposite of a solution. You know, there's there's other aspects of it. You know, that you could say, well, could it be used to avoid, um, you know, state uh, meddling? I think that's that's sort of like the the promise of it, right? That like Israel has. Um, control over so much of uh, Palestinian uh, economic and financial system. Um, so, so that's an understandable um, thing to try to, to have a solution to. Um, un unfortunately, you know, I, I, it, it's, it comes with all of these inherent risks and volatility um, and unreliability and so on um, to, to try to, to try to address that. We are speaking with Hadas Tier, who wrote the Dollars and Cents article, Cryptocurrency Will Not Liberate Us. You can follow Hadas on Twitter at Hadas Tier. That's T-H-I-E-R. You write Jack Mallers, the founder of Strike, a digital wallet company. A digital wallet is an app that stores crypto to tokens. Gave an emotionally wrought speech at this summer's Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami as he reported on his recent mission in El Salvador, a nation that has adopted uh, cryptocurrency. But you add that Mahler's who father, uh, founded one of the largest future brokerages in Chicago and whose net worth is unknown but is most certainly in the millions, told attendees that he's proud of everyone in the room. You quote him saying at the Bitcoin 2021 conference, I hope you find solace in knowing that you help those that haven't been helped in 250 years, referring to the people of El Salvador. The kid I went to high school uh, with is going to lean over a bar in Manhattan and drink a $35 old-fashioned and tell me Bitcoin doesn't matter. Privileged effing a-hole. Can Bitcoin level the playing field for those who do not have the privilege that Mahler supposedly dislikes despite being an inheritor of that privilege himself? Yeah, well, first of all, I just really recommend for anyone who is um, a, a masochist like myself to actually um, Google, or not, I don't remember where it is, where to find it on YouTube exactly, but find this Jack Mahler speech. It's from the, um, the, the Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami, Florida, and watch it for yourself because um, when I say it's like emotionally wrought, you know, is an understatement. This was like, Really, I, I, I wonder uh, to what extent he drinks his own Kool-Aid and to what extent he's a phenomenal actor. Um, but yeah, it's really quite a, a sight to, to behold. There's so much just in this kind of Bitcoin culture um, of um, 
you know, this kind of bro-y bordering on cult-like um, culture in, in Bitcoin that's, um, that's really kind of a sight to behold. Um, but sorry, I went on a tangent. You asked me um, whether it can level the playing field. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, it goes back to some of the, the questions that we talked about that it is vastly unequal uh, both in terms of who has access to mining Bitcoin, what kind of technology is necessary, who has access to trading Bitcoin in terms of, you know, the internet and electricity infrastructure, um, and in terms of, you know, who has the money to spare. It's sort of like that that old um, gambling um, motto of don't don't gamble anything you can't afford to lose. Um, you know, and that's why for, for millionaires and billionaires, this is like, you know, uh, uh, kind of like playhouse for the ultra rich where you can, you know, take your millions and try to make it into billions and so on. Um, and ultimately, um, if the price of Bitcoin or other cryptocurrencies crash, um, you know, you can hold out and wait until they hopefully jump back up or what have you. Uh, but for people who don't just have extra um, thousands or millions of dollars laying around, uh, that that's not really an option. So, so both in terms of who can participate um, in 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 the trading of it, in the mining of it, um, who is it that also then has greater impact in the, uh, you know, cryptocurrency markets, you know, I, that, that same study that I mentioned earlier that showed that the concentration of Bitcoin wealth is, um, you know, a hundred times more concentrated about than in the fiat economy made the case that, you know, it's, it's also true that when millionaires who have, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions or more um, worth of Bitcoin um, assets, they, when they move their assets around, they can have huge impact on the, the, the state of that market and, and, and on the state of uh, Bitcoin value just by the sheer movement of their, of their assets. Um, they have tons of control over the direction that it goes in. Whereas, you know, for, for a kind of regular, um, you know, person that has managed to put some money into Bitcoin or whatever, um, you're basically just susceptible to whatever movements it is that the, the so-called crypto whales um, create in, in the market. You write that even in a best case yet unlikely scenario where cryptocurrencies could play a stable and seamless role in facilitating monetary transactions in the developing world in places like El Salvador, the Palestine, as well as Venezuela, it assumes that the main roadblock to global equality is that people don't have access to financial products, microloans, and property rights. But capitalism has created deep geopolitical and social problems that cannot be overcome with a monetary techno fix. The key global challenge that we face is not one of technology, 
but one of class power. Is that why libertarians find crypto so attractive? Because they are more interested in technological fixes than challenging class power? Does crypto insulate to any degree wealth from challenges to class power or even white privilege for that matter? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's absolutely true. And it's certainly, you know, the appeal to people like Michael Saylor and Elon Musk and, and so on. Um, you know, and you you quoted earlier um, that Wall Street Journal article from uh, uh, DeSoto and uh, Phil Graham, where they were like <laughs> they, they explicitly say, you know, instead of destroying private property to promote a Marxist inequality and poverty, uh, perhaps we can bring property rights to all mankind, you know? So it's definitely a more appealing prospect um, for, for the rich adherents of cryptocurrency and certainly, yeah, for, for that kind of libertarian, um, the libertarian ideological roots of, of cryptocurrency and, and the, and its adherents um, from the get go that, you know, essentially you you know the idea here is to trade in a world that's run by um you know states um that yes is absolutely works towards the benefit of the wealthy and it's like that by design you know that's that's how capitalism works the only thing that kind of regulates and mitigates against it is the extent to which there are democratic processes in place and movements that hold states accountable, that hold the wealthy accountable. You know, that's where I think our power comes from in terms of how do we actually um, make the changes that address class power, um, as you as you noted. Um, you know, but for I think for in, in the kind of libertarian mindset, it's like you want to trade in that world that's that is run by the state and yes does benefit the wealthy but towards a world that is still controlled by the wealthy but without a mechanism for um democratic control um you know that that basically everything comes down to you know our individual autonomy and economic power and you know, I, I don't think that's really a workable uh, means to wide-scale liberation. That may be a workable means towards some individual's ability to get rich. Um, and there are there are some people that have been able to get rich off of this, um, you know. But but the idea that that would actually transform society in any kind of fundamental way, I I, I disagree. You also write that crypto assets have promoted the commodification of everything. From Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey's first tweet, the proof of ownership of this tweet sold for just under $3 million, to virtual land grabs on the metaverse, a digital plot of land in Decentraland, an open-source 3D virtual world platform recently sold for $2.5 million, and the financialization of our daily interactions as co-founder of the Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, or or, uh, D. DAO software company syndicate Ian Lee put it to the Financial Times, the goal is to turn internet users and contributors into investors and vice versa. So what happens if, as crypto supporters hope, everything becomes commodified? Yeah, exactly. I mean, 
I, I think it's, it's deeply disturbing to be honest. I mean, there's again, you know, some aspects of the technology, I'm not saying the technology in of itself is, is evil or, or whatever. Um, it's, it's how, um, you know, it's how it's been used and, and what the framework of things look like now. There are, you know, people that argue that uh, NFTs, and, and we can talk more about what those are, but that they, they can help some artists make, uh, you know, better um, commissions and so on. But I think you have to look at what on the whole has the direction of cryptocurrencies and the, you know, cryptocurrency adjacent um, um, assets like NFTs and, and so on, what are they doing in terms of the direction that we're moving in, right? That everything becomes commodified, everything can become tokenized, you know, it's like on the one hand, can people, digital artists selling their art through NFTs, could that encourage more art? I, you know, I think in theory, sure it could, um, but it also obviously contributes to the complete degradation of art and the tokenization of anything. Um, you know, the X-ray of William Shatner's teeth or what have you um, has sold for, I can't remember how many millions. Um, you know, the, the internet for all its problems and issues has created this like vast and replicable abundance of digital content and the you know idea of cryptocurrency and crypto assets is basically to introduce an enforced scarcity um, that can be more easily claimed you know that can that can add ownership to anything um, so you have you know a, a, a gif on your computer that you could send anywhere right click you know forward etc um, well, you know, now in the world of, of, of crypto and, and NFTs, like who owns that GIF? Um, even if you can continue to, um, replicate it, uh, and, and save it to your, your computer, somebody ha somebody owns the bragging rights, um, to that, to that, uh, to that image. Which is disturbing, and you write, whereas the internet created a vast and replicable uh, abundance of digital content, crypto assets introduce enforced scarcity to the digital world, as you were just saying, in order to claim ownership. As NFT assigns a digital receipt to an item which is verified on a blockchain, NFTs can thus commercialize any digital item and bind it to a system of ownership, financial transactions, and speculation. Meanwhile, DAOs, that's Decentralized Autonomous Organizations, set up organizational structures in which you must purchase tokens to participate in discussions. Would this mean the end of freely communicating on social media or online more generally? And if so, what happens when all forms of communica communication, uh, the posts that I put on social media, the comments that you make to my posts or the comments that I make to your posts are suddenly a commodity that can be the source of investment. How does that affect the way that we would communicate online? Yeah, I mean, it, it's certainly a dystopian future. Um, you know, I I hope that it that we don't go fully down that road. Um, and I and I don't think it's inevitable that we will. But I think um, that moving in that direction 
is, you know, highly disturbing and alienating. Um, and that, you know, there's this um, move towards like increasingly uh, virtual worlds. And now there's like virtual land grabs uh, courtesy of, um, you know, uh, crypto uh, technology where and, and NFTs where people can spend hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars on um, virtual real estate, you know, and, you know, I, it, in some ways, it's probably not a coincidence that this stuff kind of exploded a bit during the pandemic and more people were home and more people were on their screen and, um, and so on. But I think, um, you know, that's not, that's not the world that, that I want to live in for sure. Um, that, and, and it's not a world that is, um, most, um, conducive to human interaction and human organizing and political organizing. Um, you know, I think, uh, it, it really behooves us to be able to, to, to actually be together, um, and have relationships that are not, um, <clears throat> that are not being, uh, you know, that, that don't have to go through uh, the the internet and through ownership rights and tokens and so on. You also write about a recent paper by finance professors Antoinette Shoar of MIT and the London School of Economics, Igor, or Igor Makarov, found that as the at the end of uh, 2020, as you were mentioning earlier, the top 1,000 investors controlled about 3 million bitcoins out of just under 19 million. The top 10,000 bitcoin accounts hold 5 million bitcoins. As the Wall Street Journal pointed out recently, this means that approximately 0.01% of Bitcoin holders control 27% of Bitcoin in circulation. By comparison, in the U.S., where wealth inequality is at its most extreme in decades, the top 1% of households hold about a third of all wealth. That's an almost 100-fold increase in inequality as it compares to the dollar economy. So to what extent is crypto then the driving force of continuing global inequality? Are those who invest in as well as spokespeople for crypto profiting from increased global inequality? Because this doesn't sound just like global inequality to me. I mean, when it comes to the situation with uh, the amount of fees that Bitcoin puts on remittances from the people, uh, from people, uh, El Salvadorans who are here in the United States to the people of El Salvador who depend on those remittances, this doesn't just sound like global inequality to me, Hadas. It sounds like a new form of financial colonialism. Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's right, and I think um, you know there's been some um, you know increased attention being paid to exactly that question about um, both internally in terms of um, who is benefiting at whose expense, um, you know, but also globally in terms of uh, colonial relationships and. I, you know, I quoted um, a researcher, Olivier Jutel. I don't know how to pronounce his last name. I think it's Jutel. But he talks about like in the Pacific Islands, which have just become, you know, like a tech frontier for blockchain. And a lot of that has to do with, you know, tax shelters and tax-free economic development zones and, you know, a place to kind of experiment with a technology uh, in the developing world um, at the at at the expense of really, you know, fragile um, both um, economies and 
environment, um, you know, for the benefit of, of, you know, these large, uh, and powerful stakeholders. Um, I think it, it exacerbates all, you know, so many of the inequalities, <coughs> so many of the inequalities that we see. I'm um, sorry, I need another drink of water. I'm not used to talking so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Um, mm. Yeah. So I, I think that, um, I, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. You know, it's, um, an exacerbation of these problems, um, in some, and it, it is, as I said earlier, you know, not subject to, uh, not just the regulation, but also, um, you know, when you have, when you have states that are doing horrible things, um, you know, there's, there's, there, there's people within those states that can organize against that, you know, like whether that's Russians protesting, um, you know, against a war in Russia and, or, or in this country, um, us having the protest to, um, you know, against the U.S.'s continued roles, um, and to try to deescalate the the U.S.'s uh, relationship to all of that, you know, there's there are, there is a w- means for us to organize, um, you know, and I think that the world of cryptocurrency is makes that a lot more challenging. And you also point out the technology that powers cryptocurrency is varied, and its underlying philosophy runs a spectrum. But at the heart of crypto culture lies a belief that financialized property is the key to human advancement, and that economic incentives lead to personal autonomy. In fact, that's not so different from mainstream capitalist ideology. Arguably, it's worse. Crypto libertarians want to trade a world run by institutions that benefit the wealthy by design, but are somewhat regulated by democratic processes for a world that is controlled completely by the ultra wealthy with no mechanism for democratic control. So is cryptocurrency an intentional project to bring about plutocracy and government for and by the rich, replacing any vestige of democracy that we may still have? And is that why libertarians love crypto? Because the their end goal is plutocracy i mean i think that it it depends on i think there's various interests involved right and i i I look in a most generous read which is not necessarily the read that i have but in a most generous read you can say that there were well-intentioned and interesting maybe even some liberatory aspects of cryptocurrency at its very beginning um that it has been since kind of taken over by the Elon Musks and the Michael Saylors of the world um, because none of these things exist in, in a vacuum. Um, and we do live in a capitalist order, right? So it is going to be the Elon Musks and the Michael Saylors that, that make, that, that benefit the most um, from this kind of um, technology and, and uh, speculation and so on. Um so you could you could kind of make that case, and there I'm sure that there are people that were involved on the ground floor um, that did not have, and maybe still do not have in mind, you know, a plutocratic system. Um, I, I think that that's um, that that for sure must be true. 
Um, but I think that what you're what you're pointing at about you know the 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 contradictory nature of libertarianism that there's sort of like a faux promise of freedom, but it's on the basis of individuality. Um, you know, it's on the basis of um, you know uh, being completely uh, untethered from um, from the state and from the democratic processes that are connected to the state um, that, you know, completely untethered from democratic control. Um, you know, I think, I, I think that, you know, the idea that we're sort of like just autonomous individuals and that that's where liberation comes from, I think is very susceptible to um, extremely right-wing ideas, um, even if there's kind of the, the veneer of um, freedom and liberation um, in the way that, that, it, that it's talked about. We have been speaking with Hadass Tier, who wrote the Dollars and Cents article, Cryptocurrency Will Not Liberate Us. Hadass is author of A People's Guide to Capitalism, an introduction to Marxist, uh, Marxist economics. You can uh, find that interview that we did with Hadass back in 2020 at our website, thisishell.com. When you search on Hadass's last name, that's T-H-I-E-R. Make sure you check out her most recent article at Jacobin, including the Valentine's Day posted article, The Stories We Tell Ourselves About Marriage Are Wrong. You can follow Hadass on Twitter at Hadass Tier. One last question for you, Hadass, and as always, it is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You may hate to answer and our audience may hate your response and i love the fact that you're laughing at that so uh, <laughs> is crypto a last gasp of free market capitalism because i've been telling people since the last century since before the show began that we are in the death throes of conservatism that's not to say it's about to end but that it's going to take us all down with it so is crypto the death throes of late stage capitalism and could it take us all down with it Mm. That's a, that's a good and um, terrible question. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, it, it's it's hard to predict, obviously, and it's been things have been so volatile um, in sort of the state of cryptocurrencies in general. Um, and like we were saying before, we're just at the beginning stages of questions about regulation and, you know, China recently banned cryptocurrency mining altogether. Um, you know, I, I, it's it's soon to tell exactly how all that plays out. I do think that it is absolutely true that it is a manifestation of um, this kind of like um, decrepit stage of capitalism that we're in for sure. And that, um, you know, it's all of the kind of libertarian ideas and so on that we were talking about very much reflect decades of neoliberalism kind of destroying, um, you know, destroying state infrastructures, um, destroying uh, welfare provisions, um, hollowing out all of the kind of um, state um, services and so on that, that people used to depend on. Um, and so it's very understandable that the reaction to decades of neoliberalism would take on a kind of like 
individualistic, autonomous, libertarian flavor. Um, and that it becomes kind of like you were saying, I mean, it's like the free market on crack, you know, um, uh, all, all of the, the, the anger and disillusion that came out of the financial crisis in, in 2008, but then creating, you know, a, a, a an even worse version of Wall Street, um, basically as as a as a quote unquote solution. So, um, so I I think that that's right. That that's kind of where it comes from. Whether it drags us all down with it, you know, I I sincerely hope not. And I um, I, I I think um, you know, I'm relatively optimistic. Um, you know, we'll have to see. <laughs> how this bears out years from now, whether I'll, I'll eat my words, um, that, um, you know, that, that we can still slow and eventually stop this, uh, this road that we're on. Well, I'm glad that one person who is in this conversation is relatively optimistic. <laughs> Hadass, thank you so much for being back on our show. And again, check out our interview from 2020 with Hadass by going to thisishell.com and searching on her last name, Tier. That's T-H-I-E-R. Thank you so much for being back on our show. This is a fascinating article, and there's a lot more to this article than we've been discussing, even for... 55 minutes. This is just an amazing article, and I really appreciate you being back on the show, and I hope to have you uh, back on the show again soon. Thank you so much. I always like talking about hell with you. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. Pretending to know what I'm talking about since 1996, this is hell. If that conversation with Hadass on the frightening present and even more frightening future of cryptocurrency was in some way informative, enlightening, or made you realize that, yes, this really is hell. Show your appreciation by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell, or go to thisishell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing. So thanks to all of you for your support. Sebastian, do we have any more of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell? And please remind us, what is this week's question? from hell uh, this week's question from hell is still what conflict are you avoiding <laughs> what conflict are you avoiding uh, on Facebook we have a bunch of new ones no oh, sweet um, where do we start we start here uh, Bohtan G says realizing how many similarities exist between the Russian imperial spirit and American manifest destiny I'm not sure if that's uh, a conflict you can't avoid I guess yeah, I guess yeah. Uh, Aaron D says, two dogs growling at each other at Alamo Square. <laughs> All right. Sloan TL says, the conflict with myself. Yes. Yeah, that's a, that's a uh, Nowak Wolf says, none. And why should I? <laughs> All right. Wojciech R says, cognitive dissonance. <laughs> that is a conflict. Okay. Uh, Neil C says cremation versus burial burial that's one of these words I always have difficulty with cremation versus burial or maybe a better way of saying it Republican versus Democrat <laughs> all right Andrew S says confronting the raccoons that have made a home in the attic <laughs> now that's a conflict you do not want to get involved in yeah. Kim G says climate change destruction versus nuclear annihilation versus visiting my parents. <laughs> I mean, either of these will solve all of these, I guess. Uh, David S says battle of the network stars. All right. 
Um, and then uh, via DM and email, uh, we got a few others. Um, Yehawk says, your mom. <laughs> Uh, always a good answer. Uh, VesF says, I'll be avoiding the 2008 remake of Get Smart. That's an awful James Can flick. It is an awful movie, and everybody should avoid it. And uh, if anybody thinks that, uh, what's his name? Something Carell from uh, The Office. Steve. Steve Carell, he's in that, and it's awful. Any more? Or do you want to save them for the next time around? Uh, I mean, we do still have some some on Twitter. I don't know. Um, I, I guess I guess we can go on on, on Twitter. Um, on Twitter we have uh, Petre Gustator, rock taster, uh, saying confronting my body about being sick and old. All right. Uh, Eat fart sixty nine says. I'm avoiding conflict with my TV-brained, cop-loving, houseless-hating, foaming-at-the-mouth, trigger-happy neighbors by using my partner's next-door account, which is in her name. <laughs> Any more? Uh, then we have Hypocrite Reader, who says, Avoiding scheduling conflicts by abolishing the concept of linear time. <laughs> yeah, the concept of linear time is overrated. It is. And probably also colonialist or something. Um, Tim Schnorr says all of them wait I, I guess you also said that on Facebook uh, at least somebody said that on Facebook yeah. and again that's Couple always of people. a good answer sure. uh, Jamie Jamie Kneen says the conflict between my id ego and super ego Freud thought cocaine helped but he didn't know about psychedelics <laughs> alright let's get to the rest of them after a Jeff Dorchin in the moment of truth keeping it real real deep in debt since 1996 this is hell and if you want to help us climb out of that debt you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell become a subscriber to this is hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell get exclusive access to our weekly Patreon podcast with streams weekly uh, and his podcast shortly after at the same place patreon.com slash this is hell on this week's Patreon it's actually a, my own deep dive into my own answer to this week's question from hell, which is, again, what conflict are you avoiding? I'll be dis giving you my answer in a little bit, and then shortly, and then uh, on the Patreon podcast, I'll be discussing my answer to this week's question from hell in depth. We're also sharing a 20-year-old interview from March 2nd, 2002, when we spoke with Ram Rahat, who works with Yesh Gavul, a support organization for Israeli soldiers who refuse to fight in the occupied territories or in support of any aggressive t actions that the Israeli soldier deems immoral and unethical. To make this week's Patreon podcast even more enticing, we got an email from an actual small-scale boutique marijuana grower who gave us their insight into our conversation this week with Mary Jane Gibson, who posted the Rolling Stone article, Inside California's Cannabis Crisis. But you can only hear all that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast that streams live Thursday and his podcast shortly after at the same place. Patreon.com slash This Is Hell. Coming up, Jeff Dorchin with the moment of truth. The rest of your answers to this week's question from hell. We will be announcing this week's winner. We'll also tell you what's happening on next week's This Is Hell or not. Mostly not because I do not think we have anyone booked yet to be on next week's show. Live from Hangover Country, This Is Hell. Sebastian, I know you have. Hefe on the line. What?
feast or phantom. Welcome to the moment of truth. The thirst you can drink. I assume we're all familiar with the concept of fake shortages. They are always paired with arbitrary price hikes. In a capitalist wonderland such as ours, there's very little constraining the capitalist from charging whatever he, she, it, or they want. Whatever the market will bear, that is, the highest price one can charge and still move product, that is the only price limit. That is the limit on the capitalist's avarice. And if the poor people in the market can't bear it, too bad for them. That's why Martin Shkreli decided he could raise the price of an AIDS-related pneumonia drug about 650%. He figured insurance companies can't deny their policyholders the drug. If you need a medicine, you need it. The sufferers who have bad insurance policies or otherwise can't afford it, well, they'll find the money or lose a lung. What skin is it off Screlly's entitled behind if a few luckless losers die? He wanted that delicious money, savory money, hot off the grill, dripping with loser blood. Screlly's special expertise, besides driving stock prices down by pounding them with a barrage of negative rumors in order to collect on short sales, was buying the rights to sell certain drugs whose patents had lapsed, for which there was not yet a generic version being sold, and jack up the price astronomically. He had various methods to choke a competing drug's distribution, quash generic alternatives, obtain regulations targeted to make his inflated option the only option. Imagine if your job was to get up every morning and find a way to drive up healthcare costs for your own benefit without a thought to whose lives would be destroyed. There's nothing illegal about it. It's a perfectly valid career choice under our system. Shkreli's in jail now, but not for pharmaceutical extortion. See, he also enjoyed committing securities fraud. But don't worry, he's expected to be released this coming November, even though he was caught with a contraband cell phone with which he was running his company from prison. You're not supposed to do that. But we won't increase your sentence. Just take your phone away and make you promise never to do it again. No punishment. Same as if you're caught running your business from the Oval Office. Again, Shkreli's in prison for securities fraud, not for holding life-saving medications hostage. The crime is what he did to wealthy investors or the SEC, not to regular sick people with inadequate means. It's a double standard we've seen before. That psychopathic woman famous for her fake blood testing device, affectedly deep voice, and black turtleneck. Some know her by her stage name, which is also her real name, Elizabeth Holmes. When she was convicted early this past January, the charges that stuck were all for wire fraud she'd committed by way of lying to her investors. She was found not guilty of defrauding the users of the fake device, who may have done anything from making minor lifestyle changes to un undergoing expensive and drastic treatments based on her glorified pachinko machine's baseless diagnoses. These and countless other financial shenanigans cost us, the people, so much more than the taxation and regulation the USA seems terrified of. Things that could actually deliver us guaranteed health care, not to mention housing, education, and food security. It's the greatest trick the devil ever played. 
We, the people, have started noticing at least the treacherous tip of the iceberg of all this fraud, causing shipwreck after shipwreck of policy initiatives that might otherwise improve our lives. We've been watching these spectacles from our vantage point in the cheap seats. The deals are made above our objections and our heads, but the toxic fallout rains, blizzards, and buries us much more readily than any of the wasted Wall Street gambling money ever trickles down, and we are rarely ever made whole. Being forced to watch these nauseating dramedies has been, alongside public neglect and corporate opportunism during the COVID-19 struggles, yet another reason for what they're calling the Great Resignation, where U.S. workers, sick of being treated like carnival game marks by economic master con artists who constantly, <clears throat> who constantly belittle our legitimate despair and precarity, have been quitting our jobs, hoping to find less punishing ways to make a living than wage slavery. We've now entered the capitalist retaliation phase, though, which we all suspected was imminent. Let's call it the great gouging. Basically, what Martin Shkreli did with out-of-patent drugs, every large corporation is doing with the goods they've secured the rights to distribute, the worst offenders, of course, being the oil, gas, and electric companies. Except unlike Shkreli, they don't have to waste time manipulating regulations to gouge their customers. They only have to collude to raise prices, which they can do through any number of clandestine channels. They like to keep us in the dark, as if we can't hear them juggling their accounts. When an industry's profits are higher than they've ever been, there's no reason for the products they deign to provide to get more expensive. There's no shortage. These are arbitrary price increases that pundits, the government, and the sellers themselves will all happily blame on COVID-19. Well, if you just risked your lives going into work like we demanded, the prices wouldn't be this high, Cratchit. They all seem to say if they even feel the need to explain their price gouging to us plebes. And now they can use the Russian invasion of Ukraine as an excuse to gouge us even deeper. They've never even been required to explain why credit cards charge you serious interest rates, and they've always been ready to pile fees on and assess fines against us. An old socialist friend in New Zealand and I talk over Zoom. And uh, we were commiserating about what an economic struggle it is to be an artist in the USA. And we got to talking about how, at one time, my theater company could actually make enough to pay to live in the city of Chicago, rent a space, and put on plays. But that was back when the city of Chicago wanted college-age artists, college-educated artists. One Mormon developer wanted to rent to artists and suckleters, meaning sculptors, I guess, to put a predominantly white foot in the door, beginning the process of gentrification. Now, now more than ever, as they say, the theater arts are expected to be a money-losing enterprise, unlike other forms of lying. And my Kiwi friend used the phrase feast or famine, except he didn't say famine. He accidentally switched the M and the N, so he said, it's feast or famine, Jeffrey. And that's where we are right now, as the feast or phantom cycle of capitalist price manipulation turns on its axis, we've entered the phantom phase. Past guest of This Is Hell, the late economist Amartya Sen, won the Nobel Prize in Economics for his research on the causes of famine. 
His work demonstrated that famines have little to do with food abundance. They're all about inadequate food distribution. They happen even in years of record food production. Even farmers who grow the crops can be forced by rigged markets to sell at a low price and subsequently find themselves unable to afford to buy food. Famines are indeed phantoms, but phantoms that really do starve and kill. They are phantoms created by the obeisance to the will of the profit makers, deadly phantoms. There's an implication in the phrase, feast or phantom, though, that even apparent abundance might be manipulation. Back when propaganda against Cuba led efforts to Americanized Puerto Rico, which in turn required shrinking the Puerto Rican population, which in turn required convincing many Puerto Ricans to move to New York, where companies happened to need cheap labor. Suddenly, reasonable airfares became available. Pan Am had long enjoyed a monopoly, but suddenly Eastern Airlines was allowed to offer direct flights to New York City. People worry about communism creating centrally planned economic activity, yet Here's one among many instances of the capitalist impulse to suddenly oversupply. In this case, to contrive an entire population of migrant workers pressured through economic machinations to leave their homes on the basis of a vague promise. It's not hard to think of other examples where somehow a rare commodity suddenly becomes cheap and available, not by accident, but by design. New York didn't suddenly get an influx of Puerto Rican newcomers because Eastern Airlines offered cheap flights. Eastern Airlines offered cheap flights in order to fulfill the wishes of capitalists that cheap labor come to New York and that Puerto Rico glorify capitalism against the example of Cuba, just like Cheap cocaine in the form of crack magically appeared on the streets of L.A. Or cheap opioids in Appalachia. It was all part of a planned economy. So, feast or phantom might be more accurately phrased phantom or phantom. What a choice. Just the everyday magical state stagecraft of our economic overlords. Get your rotten produce ready to throw during the curtain call. Maybe you can get it from imperfect foods i wonder what that company's about this has been the moment of truth ah, good day so jeffy other than your obsession with how i pronounce pachki punchki 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 <laughs> hey I, i'm sure that i was declaring it wrong but i don't care i'll take the hit you know what? I, the funniest thing is uh, right before uh, today's show, I decided to look it up. Let's see how it's actually pronounced. And the dumbest pronunciation I saw of it was a picture of Punch, the character from Chips, plus <laughs> a key to a door. And it said, just pronounce it Punch Key, which I've never heard Punch Key before in my life. I have heard Punch Key, but it's uh, it's it's usually tempered a little bit like Punch, punch I don't know. Um that's almost a rebus, isn't it? It is almost a rebus. You know, I got a laddie when I was in Baltimore. Laddie gave me a uh, national beer. Mm -hmm. It was a awful. cap. Oh, okay. A cap and it had a rebus on it. Yes. And he couldn't figure out what it said, and I couldn't either. It was a a lady's back, like naked la naked back, uh, or shoulder or something, and oh, <laughs> and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, what was it? Is there I, an invasion of the Russian army happening to your home right now? What is that noise in the background? I don't hear anything. Oh, okay. Maybe it's just on my end. 
Maybe it's me rattling around. I tell you what, a... make, take a picture of the uh, Rebus and post it, and we'll see if we can figure it out. Because there's no, no way I figured gonna... it out. I figured. It what out. is it? I mean, I didn't figure it out. I actually couldn't figure it out. I was like, but but somebody went and looked it up on the National Beer site, and it makes no sense. Okay, all right. Well, share it with <laughs> us, and I want to see what it is. Will do. All right, Jeffy. Until next time. Yeah. Stay beautiful. Live from land stolen from the Potawatomi people, this is hell. Sebastian, please share with us the rest of our listeners' answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what conflict are you avoiding? Via email, uh, we got uh, a message, um, an answer to this question from to this week's question from hell. There we go. <clears throat> Michael C. says, internal conflict, I guess. I don't know. Everything's probably fine. <laughs> Um, via Twitter, Mike the Giga Grouch uh, sent us a DM. The conflict I'm avoiding, my pacifism and rooting for Ukraine, uh, which seems like a very American answer. Sure. Um, da, 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 and then, and then we got another one by email from Peter S saying, "I'm avoiding the conflict between both my inner demons and my butt demons." <laughs> Is that it? Uh, yep, that's it. So the answers I liked the most were, I did like Michael C. saying his internal conflict, Peter S. saying I'm avoiding the conflict between both my inner demons and my butt demons, uh, Bodon G. saying realizing how many similarities exist between the Russian imperial spirit and American manifest destiny, I guess because they're both imperialism, Sloan saying the conflict with myself, Andrew S. saying confronting the raccoons that have made a home in the attic, that is pretty spectacular. Kim G saying climate change destruction versus nuclear annihilation versus visiting my parents. Wojcic saying uh, cognitive dissonance and Badger N saying Kiev versus Kiev. So first, Sebastian, what's your answer to this week's question from hell? What is the conflict that you are avoiding? Uh, the conflict I am avoiding by being here is uh, the conflict in Germany about whether it is Berliner Kreppel, Krapfen, Pfannkuchen, Eierkuchen, or whatever else uh, Germans... Like, see, in, in Germany, Putschkis, Putschkis, <laughs> however you pronounce them, have, like, a, a different name depending on uh, where you are in Germany. And so that's basically the conflict I'm avoiding by just being like, hey, it's it's Putschkis it's, or Putschkis. It, or a Berliner. Yeah, or a Berliner. As in JFK said, ich bin ein Berliner, which, exactly. which was a huge... He is, he is not a powdered dough sphere that's got some delicious filling inside. But he was so sweet. But he was sweet. <laughs> so, uh, let's see. Uh, that makes this week's winner... Jeez. I'm going to go with Andrew S. I think the raccoons one was the best one. How about you, Sebastian? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'll go along. You got that. any other ones you liked in there? Mm, I mean, there's, there was a bunch of good ones, but uh, I, I think the inner demon, butt demon one is probably my personal one. All right, so let's change it then, because I wasn't too sure. We're going to go with Peter S. saying that the conflict he is avoiding is I'm avoiding the conflict between both my inner demons and my butt demons. Andrew S., sorry. Maybe next time. Congratulations, Peter S., for answer, to having our favorite answer to this week's question from hell. My answer to this week's question from hell, what conflict are you avoiding? What conflict are you avoiding? Is very much like what 
Michael C. said about his internal conflict, what Wojcic said about cognitive dissonance, and what Sloan said about the conflict within myself. The conflict I am avoiding is the conflict I am always avoiding, and it's the subject of my monologue on Patreon this week at patreon.com slash thisishell, and that is the constant conflict between words and actions. Words and actions. Sure, I, I talk a big game, but do I actually practice what I preach? For that matter, do I actually preach? despite being an ordained minister in two very suspect religions. And really, I don't like to preach as much as I preach to the choir, as much as I like to take the choir out back and get them really high to change their minds about something else. But you can only find out uh, what I mean by uh, my conflict between words and actions by subscribing to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Because... Isn't words versus action the conflict of us that we all struggle with every day? Thanks to everyone for sending in your answer to this week's question from hell. Sebastian, do we have anyone confirmed yet for next week's show? Uh, next week, uh, on Tuesday, we have confirmed Alexander Zajcik on his book Owning the Sun, A People's History of Monopoly Medicine from Aspirin to COVID-19 Vaccine. Oh, that um, sounds good. But the the title reminds me of this whole thing where like a Spanish woman claimed to claimed ownership of the sun. Yes. I, I don't know if you remember that. And Alexander Zajcik also, I believe he wrote the book on the filing cabinet that we talked about on last week's last year's show. Finally, we've got two more suggestions for guests on Ukraine. The first is from Tom G, who always sends excellent suggestions. Tom G suggests yet another writer at OpenDemocracy.net, Taras Bilos, a Ukrainian historian and an activist at the social movement organization. As an editor for Commons Journey of Social Critique, Taras covers the topics of war and nationalism as most recent writing at Open Democracy is a letter to the Western left from Kiev. The anti-imperialism of idiots meant people turned a blind eye to Russia's actions. Thanks, Tom. Uh, Alex already reached out to Taras, and being in Kiev, unsurprisingly, his availability is, let's say, problematic, although we are still trying to get him on a future show here on This Is Hell. Brad R. also suggested someone who has been on This Is Hell in the past, as well as seconded a suggestion we got earlier this week from Daniel M. in Mississippi. Brad writes, I would recommend you talk to Tony Wood. Check out this article by him from February 24th. Brad then sends a link to Tony's London Review of Books article on the war in Ukraine titled, Why Didn't They Stop It? Brad then seconds Daniel's in Mississippi's suggestion, Brian Becker, writing Brian is a close study of the conflict and its antecedents. He then offers a link to the People's Dispatch article, Understanding the Conflict in Ukraine and Perspectives for the Anti-War Movement. Thanks to everyone for all your outstanding suggestions on, on guests relating to what's happening in Ukraine, and hopefully we'll have one of them on to begin next week's show. I know that right now, Alex is reaching out to Tony Wood, so maybe he will be our guest next week. We start every week's live streaming show here at thisishell.com by revealing this week's Hangover Cure, which is a placebo. Thanks to this week's guests, uh, Daniel Mello, who wrote the Black Agenda Report article, The Capitalist Imperative, Driving Cruel and Bipartisan U.S. Immigration Policies, as well as Democrats and Trading Power for Political Power Migration Policies. Thanks to Mary Jane Gibson, who posted the Rolling Stone article, Inside California's Cannabis Crisis, and thanks to today's guest, Hadas Tier, who wrote the Dollars and Cents article, Cryptocurrency Will Not Liberate, liberate Us. Thanks to Sebastian Vupper for running the board today. Also, thanks to Dan Hill 
Hill and Lindsey Gorey for their work as board ops this week. Thanks to Jeff Dorchin for another moment of truth. Thanks to Alex Jerry for producing this week's show. And thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for this week in Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron Humiston and Richard Norwood just because talk to you tomorrow on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell there's only one way to get over all of the problems that we've introduced to you on this week's set of shows that's by sitting down in the lotus position turning your palms towards the sky focusing on that burning white dot in the middle of your forehead and saying the simple words everybody's stupid my demon is on my butt <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller and my demon tries to knock me down and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.